This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 192, brought to you in association with Smart and enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Ben Richmond, founder and CEO of RegTech Cube, to talk about starting up and growing a company without equity raises. A super important topic, as so many young entrepreneurs seem to believe the only way is equity, with all the challenges that entails. This is certainly a topic that Ben knows intimately, having done just that over the past decade. RegTech Cube having been founded in 2011 and having grown to around 250 people at present and seven-figure monthly revenues based on the most old school of concepts, organic cash flow alongside debt. In the recent LFP 189, we heard about the non-dilutive, i.e. non-equity sources of finance via government grants and tax credits and bridging finance while one awaits those. Back in LFP 071 with Faisal Hussein, founder of former LFP brand partner Cynicron, we heard his amazing tale about how he founded and grew a company to 7,000 employees in 18 countries in 16 years without any external capital or, in his case, any external debt, showing that organic growth can be amazingly powerful for the right business. And just to finish off with prior references, another key episode was LFP 163 with Alex Baluta, CEO of Flowcap, who took us on a deep dive into venture debt. So, Whilst we've touched on this once or twice before, I think it would be super useful to all you potential entrepreneurs out there to know that a non-equity route exists. And as importantly as that, what kind of business characteristics are required to go that route? What are its pros and cons, as well as what are the pros and cons of equity financing in the first place? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Ben. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike. Great to be here and thank you very much for having me. And talking of debt, I mean, I mentioned Alex from Flowcap and there's a curious thing, which is that you debt Johnnies do it standing up. Um, (laughs) And I could, as I just talked about, uh, actually, Alex was on the show, funny enough, because he had a standing desk. I could actually stand up because I have got a standing desk, but then I was very embarrassed last time speaking to Alex because my standing desk hasn't itself stood for some time. And as one does, as one does with life, I sort of felt shamed. I thought, oh, I have to make an effort. So, of course, for a few weeks, I did, I did standing again a little bit and, and all that. And then before you know it, you know, your New Year's resolution wears off and I'm back to sitting down again. So, yes, there's obviously a connection between funding small businesses with debt and, and standing up. So <laughs> how do you think that connection works for you, Ben? And uh, how have you got beyond the sort of, I've got a New Year's resolution, I'm going to get a standing desk and you stand for a while. And before you know it, you're sitting on your ass like I do. <laughs> There's no good having a standing desk if you're going to sit down when you should be standing up, I guess. But um, I just find it it's um, a better way to be able to present and discuss and talk on, on video calls, really. So I, I generally, I, I stand for my video meetings and sit when not, and it, it generally works that way. I'd say um, it doesn't help the back sitting all day either, so it's a, a good prompt to stand. But if you do stand all day long, then you end up generally with, with sore feet. So a mix is probably best between sitting and standing, I'd say. I like that point. And also, actually, just in, I, I was watching something, as one does, 
on, I don't know, habits or something in general recently. And um, I think it was the chaining concept, which is you associate something with something. So back in the day when loads of people went to pubs and smoked, there were some people who only smoked in pubs. And they sit down, they, they have their beer, they get their fangs out, and the, the, the two things are connected. But in the same way, if, if you've got something whereby every time you have a meeting you stand up, then you have a prompt in a way that if you just think, oh, today I'm going to stand for an hour, you start off sitting down, you check your emails, you look at something, and before you know it, you know, the, the flow is just taking you along. There's no actual prompt for standing up. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, it works. It works. Well, it works for me at least anyway, and I encourage all of my teams to do it. So um, I think it's a good thing. And, and, and when you can, you know, take, take the calls on the hoof, so to speak. So walking is uh, another important one. If you don't need to be on a video call and you can just be on a, a conference call without the video, then and you've got good signal, then, then I like to, to walk on a call as well. So that's a, that's a good mix. Yes, actually, you remind me, because there's a third element that we haven't discussed and I didn't discuss with Alex, actually, in terms of what you're doing and, and what I'm not. And I had some crazy ladies, I think she's Polish or something, used to run the NASA astronauts programme for keeping them fit and healthy and, and all this kind of stuff, which is not easy when you're not in, in gravity. And, you know, they'd come back and they'd aged literally a, d a decade in terms of loss of bone density and all these kind of things. And, you know, she'd adapted it to the, the modern world and all that. And I tried this for about 10 minutes as well, which was to stand up and sit down, oh, I don't know, about every 15 or 20 minutes. Apparently, if you do that, <laughs> it's the change of posture that pumps stuff around the body. So what you haven't realised in doing what you're doing is that when you're sitting down and standing up, it's not just sometimes you sit, sometimes you stand. It's the actually, look, I'll stand up here. It's the standing up and it's the sitting down because in doing so, it pumps lymph around your system. It, it stops fluids pooling and all that kind of stuff. Yes. But of course, unsurprisingly, uh, I found it bloody disruptive to stand up and sit down every 15 minutes because occasionally in life, not very often, of course, I do actually concentrate and suddenly standing up and sitting down. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, as you say, it's that prompt to do it and... Um... And perhaps if you're on a video call, the, the constant standing up and sitting down might be a bit distracting <laughs> to those you, you're on the call with. But I certainly, yeah, I get the thinking there because um, if you think about patients, for example, who have been in long-term um, situation where they can't move or in a coma or something like that, one of the, the real challenges is actually the fluid on the, the legs, for example, on the arms. And that, as I understand, it comes as a result of not being able to move around much at all, so uh, or if at all in those situations. And so that... Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. But as I say, I don't think jumping up and down on the, the calls would always be helpful. But we could try it. We could certainly try it. <laughs> <laughs> the Pogo podcast. That's been your one. I'll try it now if you like, Mike. I'll give it a whirl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll sort of crack on the microphones and all the sort of the wires and, and things like that. So Indeed. before we dive into this very interesting route, which was certainly underutilised for some time. I mean, I do hear more people talking about um, debt in general and venture debt and marketing debt and, and all these kind of things. So I think there is a bit of a sort of a rise in it. But before we talk about how you grew your company from an idea in your mind uh, one morning into the scale that you're at at the moment, how did you get to that point in the first place? What was it about your life that went so well or, or perhaps so wrong that you thought, <laughs> I know I'm going to found a reg tech because that's better than everything that's gone before? Yeah, I guess it depends which day you ask that question really, doesn't it? But um, it's a very bright, sunny Monday morning right now. So, um, so it's, uh, it's all good. It's funny, I think it's like with most people, you don't necessarily set out with the intention of getting into a particular area. And if you do, plans normally change. But for me, tech was certainly a big attraction and I got involved in tech some you know, 20 plus years ago now. And then I, I got more involved in the world of unstructured data content. And then that naturally really led me on to the world of reg tech because it's entirely predicated on that world of unstructured data and 
big data and that's always been an interest to me and then how you can leverage AI to extract value from that and so so yeah I went on a path to getting heavily involved in regtech and here I am today um, and interesting to look back as to where I you know started out in life which was in a a very small um, hamlet in in the west country where I grew up and that's a very different world to the one of global regulation and technology that I live in today. Yes, yes. And I, I'm sure it's a sort of a day or a week thing. And some days you wish you were back in a small hamlet, <laughs> milking cows or, or whatever people do in small hamlets these days. Or occasionally, sort of Mike. Occasionally. Wood. <laughs> yes, occasionally, quite. Exactly. Well, well, once you've made gazillions by your clever uh, funding route, you can go back and, and actually probably employ people to milk your cows and have dairy maids and, and all this kind of Buy a farm, even like Clarkson's, uh, Clarkson's farm. That's, that's been very popular. Maybe do something like that. <laughs> yes, well, also it's been incredibly instructive as well. And actually, I did yes. see a short clip on on YouTube, which was outside the the series, which is something like that. The, in the transitional period, farmers had subsidies over the next five years, or or, or something like that. And and talking of reg tech and regulations, which are sort of doing my head in entirely. I was it's phenomenal how tied down he is by regulation and how he has to account for every. I don't know, it wasn't square centimeter, but it was certainly a scale less than square meters to the bureaucrats in order to get the things. But anyway, he was basically saying that uh, this is one of these mysteries about farmers in general being pro-Brexit, which is that the subsidies are disappearing and they're all going to be screwed. And you It's know, interesting, yeah. Not every farmer is a rich former TV producer uh, like Clarkson, no. um, for whom it's sort of an interesting um, hobby. So the, the farming is certainly a challenge. It's a real dichotomy, isn't it? And I, yeah, and I, I agree with you on that. When I was watching it, I actually, even coming from the West Country and being surrounded by farms and farming and being in the world of regulation today, had no idea of the, the level of regulation that farming had upon it today. And it was, um, I think it was a good reflection of uh, some of the challenges that they have in that regard with some of the uh, fun and games that Clarkson was having. And and I think, yeah, they've, they've got a, a real challenge now as to what, what happens to those subsidies given um, Brexit and what have you. But we will see. Well, anyway, when Cube is successfully sold for sort of $10 billion um, uh, <laughs> dollars and, and you've got bored of being a, being a milkmaid, you can uh, go into a farming tech, farming reg tech, or something. There's a sort of bit of a bit of a pivot there, and and sell them sell them computers for their cows and milkmaids. Maybe <laughs> you never know. Exactly. It's a funny thing about life. So let's dive into this topic about how you grow companies. Your company's ten years old, as I mentioned, and as I mentioned with Cinecron, there are rare examples where people grew purely on organic cash flow, generally on a consultancy model. You start out consulting to, to milkmaids about milkmaids near or whatever, and you make a few quid and then you employ someone else and he makes a few quid and it kind of grows and grows and grows purely organically at one end of the spectrum. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, as we heard from the various VCs, there are plenty of businesses, especially in the tech world, that have the nature that they need to do such a capital investment in in creating a hell of a lot of ITs and techs just to, just to get going that they need to sort of raise a whole bunch of equity at the beginning. And those in the middle often start with you know a bit of sweat equity, i.e. they work for nothing or if they're crazy they fund themselves on credit cards and there's a bit of friends and family and then they get an angel and then they just like just almost defaultly go down the route of oh better do an A raise and a B raise and a C raise and a a D raise but just at the super big picture level from your experience of the sort of broader community what are the pros and cons of equity let's just start with that one pros and cons of equity well I think in part it, it really depends upon the type of firm that you're starting you know I would say that you know, if we take a, a business like Cube, then the pros are certainly that 
you can start with the the comfort factor, if you like, of uh, of having some some real funding behind you. That helps. It helps with decision making, and so much as being able to focus on opportunities rather than necessities. And it helps very much with the speed in which you can um, obviously deploy capital and and potentially therefore grow. That said, on its own, it's no guarantee of growth and it's no guarantee of success. But it it does help support you in the in the early days, as I say, to perhaps have a bit more of a comfortable ride because you're not constantly at the, the perils of the cash flow and also creates those those opportunities that you might not otherwise have if you didn't have some, some money in the bank. Um, and obviously, when you're selling to customers, if you've got some backing and you've got a better balance sheet and you've got the credibility of a, of a, a good institutional investor, then that can, uh, can be very helpful as well. So I think all of those things are very pro taking on equity. Yes, and, and hearing you speak, I think I may have mentioned in a shout-out on a, on, a, on a previous podcast about an article I'd written about the VOC, the, the Dutch East India Company, in the early 17th century and the, the, the challenge that its um, funders or equity funders or debt funders had getting some representation on management and how that, actually, that related to what the likes of Ford investors are doing today in terms of moving to permanent equity for their VC model. But it occurs to me that if you go back to the early... 1600s, there wasn't really this notion that we have of this thing called equity and this thing called debt. Basically, the initial shareholders of the, the VOC, which was the largest company in the world ever, inflation adjusted the Dutch East India, larger than any current company, which gives you some idea of its scale. They didn't really have that notion. And really, they kind of saw themselves in modern money as equity providers, but actually they were treated like debt providers. So they just didn't get involved and the management were busy filling their own boots and doing all sorts of naughty stuff, which which I write about. And why that came back to me is that hearing you talk then and abstracting from the word equity, we can basically say that if you're starting a new venture and you've got a ton of money, it makes it easier to do it. <laughs> Frankly, yes, I'd agree with that. I think it does. It, as I said, it's not a guarantee of success, but I think it does make it easier, yes. So any of us that wants us to form a business, we suddenly happen upon a ton of money. That's great because a ton of money means we can hire good people, we can expand into Singapore, Abu Dhabi, wherever we need to expand into. So in terms of the cons, the downsides mm. of equity and the pros and cons of equity, the pros and cons of debt, the pros and cons of, uh, of organic cash flow. The cons of your bunch of money at the beginning being called equity are, are what in particular? What, what's, the, what's the price of actually taking equity? Well, what is the price? I guess, um, you know, the, the ultimate price could be that one day you may not be able to, to see through on your vision or, or run the company that perhaps you spent years running. And, and so, you know, that could come about because... The equity investors, whether it be growth capital, private equity, whichever it may be, it may have a view that the company could be doing better, more expanding, you know, in, in other way, in other ways that today, you know, that it um, may not be. And and so, if you're in that scenario, then as a as a founder and as a CEO, you might have a an unwelcome surprise to find out that actually you don't necessarily control those aspects and actually the levers are such that you may find that you know it's better that somebody else takes over your your baby if you like and and takes it to the next stage now obviously in a in a in a public company similar situations can arise but obviously in the world of of equity there's typically profiles of those funds and those those profiles need to be met there's a time horizon there's a return and if for any reason you're not performing then those questions will be asked and and if it is about the more about the individual and not the the market opportunity of the company. Then that is a, a an outcome that is very real. 
I think outside of that, you know, that's sort of looking at the the bleaker aspects of it. But I think outside of that, I think the other the other cons are perhaps really enabling a founder to go after and a CEO to go after the vision in the long term to not be having to to sort of move left or right to meet particular short-term goals, but actually being able to to believe in and go after a longer-term vision and and being wholly focused on that. And again, not having the maintenance of a of an equity partner because that doesn't come without its its own overheads in terms of reporting and in, you know and and dialogue and discussion and and um, all of those things that are good and healthy, but frankly, as a as a founder, come CEO, you don't necessarily always have the the luxury to spend the time, you know, in that type of engagement. Where particularly early on, where those um, equity partners are going to take a, an awful lot of active interest in the business, and that will be demanding on you as a as an individual in terms of time spent there, rather than perhaps with customers or working on product or whatever it might be. And so. I think there's some of the factors, and I don't. I don't think, like most things, I don't think it's it's binary. I think some part of it is down to the individual and the, the individual's aspirations and and personality, really. And part of it is just down to what makes sense at what point, purely from a, a business perspective. Yes. So I'm strapping up again. If you want your business to grow, generally you need money. If the business itself isn't organically generating that, then you need money from someone else. And so there's always a tit for tat, which is people have worked hard for their own money, even if it's just doing raises as, uh, for funds, which is what VCs do. So when money comes to you, be it debt or be it equity, there are strings attached to it. And the equity word, in a sense, simply means that somebody gives you a bunch of money. And the tit for tat is that when you sell your business, they'll get a chunk of the proceeds. Right. Absolutely. That's the nature of, of, of equity. And another part of the tit for tat is that in general, not always the case, but in general, equity providers won't really be happy with coming back in five years time and seeing how you got on and whether you flogged yourself or 10 years time. Have you sold yourself yet? Oh, you haven't. Okay, see you in five years time. Because that makes them very nervous because they just sit at home biting their fingernails for five or 10 years to see whether uh, you succeeded. And they like to see more of what's going on. And so then there is a question that tit for tat is actually you're losing control of the management process of the business because you've got people in board meetings who say you know Richmond last year in the bloody business plan you said you were going to do this you said you were going to Singapore you got the wrong country you're in Australia what happened there you know and you know and before you know it you're really getting sucked into and many CEOs find this with the equity stuff sooner or later there's some fracas at the board and it's enormously distracting as you say from the day job because what you're doing at the board doesn't actually in general grow the product grow the market grow the customers that's the day job that's the kind of what you do every day you you know these are meetings that, that sort of sit sit above the um, company so maybe it's yeah. a good way of leading into the debt one which is that people give you money for your business and there's a tit for tat they're, they're, unless they're a charity just going away chucking money at, at people they want something back. So we've discussed the equity one. So debt has one advantage in that, in general, if you're raising, quotes, normal sums of debt, you don't get people on the company and you don't get people saying, I want to share the proceeds when you sell it. And you don't get people sort of beating you up over, over stuff. But again, debt people will want some kind of, 
oh, uh, security in the broadest sense, some kind of sense that actually it's not just a charitable donation and you're going to be able to repay them, which of course comes with its own sort of challenges. So mm. how does that work in terms of pros and cons? Yeah, debt indeed. I think um, you know, debt sometimes is seen as a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? And actually, you know, perhaps it needs a new image, I don't know. But actually it can be phenomenally powerful and actually serve multiple purposes very, very well in terms of why you might want to raise debt as a business. I think the, the real difference, Mike, and the, the interesting parallel here is that in the world of debt, you've agreed up front what's going to happen, when, the return, the timing, and it, it's all done. And, and so when you go into it, both parties know exactly where they are, and you have to do your bit, and you have to deliver. And if you do, then that's it. And then the debt provider's happy. And if not, you have to face whatever consequence was, was the, the you know, agreed at the outset of, of the relationship. It's different to equity, isn't it? Because with equity, you don't have that absolute clarity at the outset. You've got somebody who speculatively, at whatever level, seed, A, B, C rounds, whatever it might be, has put money in, and they obviously are putting money in to get a return. They'll have different profiles on their return, subject to who the investor is, and at what stage, and time horizons for that return. And even if they get that return, whatever they think might be the right return, they might feel that they could be getting more of a return if you were doing something different or something bigger or something elsewhere. And so, and so that's to the point of distraction. That's when the boardroom becomes really distracted from what it needs to be, which is, you know, where you're, you know, in, in conflict or having issues or challenges with your investor because you have differences of opinion or views, even in a scenario where you are doing very well and are um, executing well. But if you, if you come back to, to the, the debt scenario, the debt provider typically just wants to know what's happening. They're not there to give you that strategic input, which obviously can be can be helpful in the equity world. But if you feel that you know exactly what the strategy needs to be and is about executing on that, then the debt provider is happy just to be informed. And they're happy just to sit there, typically observe at a board meeting, uh, sometimes not even that, and just be informed and making sure that the affordability and is being is being met, the, the, the covenants and conditions of the borrowing is being met, and, and that you've got the coverage and the, the, the necessaries to repay. And so I, I think it can be very helpful to, to raise debt, not just because of the obvious factor that it, it reduces dilution. You know, what's bearing in mind, some of the early stage debt providers will want a warrant or something like that as a, as a bit of a kicker off the back of the debt. And for those people not familiar with warrants, a warrant is? A warrant is where they can opt at some point over an agreed period of time to, to buy shares at a, a, a value, whichever is agreed from nothing to something to whatever it might be as part of what's been agreed in that, that warrant. And so it does mean that as a debt provider, you get that opportunity for upside on top of your interest at some point in the future, but it generally will, will still mean minimal dilution for the management team and, and founder because warrants generally are, are very small in, in terms of size compared to equity type investment. Yeah, so whilst putting warrants to one side, you know, with debt, you know, whilst it absolutely does help with dilution, because in the early days, you're not getting diluted in the way that you would with equity, there's actually lots of other pros that come with debt, which as I said, is that known factor, less maintenance, less potential distractions in the future, the ability to have flexible borrowing that's aligned with the performance of the business, take money when you need it, don't just load up the balance sheet and then work out how to spend it, take the money as you see the, see the opportunity to deploy it, generally makes you more capital efficient, generally makes you more focused on, on the bottom line as well, what your burn looks like because you, know, you appreciate perhaps more the cost of money 
And so all of those things, I think, are, are positive to debt and it provides a level of flexibility and, and, and benefit that I think in the right scenario can, can outweigh equity. I think, I mean, just on the warrants, you know, we're simplifying this into debt versus equity, but of course there are hybrids in between, of which the warrant is an example. It's a bit of an upside kicker in the convertible loan notes and, and all this That's right. kind of stuff, yeah. but we're just trying to sort of sketch out the overall territory. Um, and in terms of uh, sketching it out, um, we've done an episode or two perhaps on, on venture debt before, and obviously from the lender's perspective, lending is a very complex thing and it depends what you're lending against and all that kind of stuff. But just briefly from the founder's perspective, maybe you can give us your founder's perspective on the security. So back in the day, if we were talking 50 years ago, well, we wouldn't be using the internet, of course, but you'll probably be some metal bashing firm and you've got some <laughs> huge steel press or something right. that you've just bought. And I've lent you sort of, you know, 10 million to buy a steel press or something like that. And you've got to repay me whatever, a thousand pounds a day or whatever it is, whatever the interest rate was. But I have the, quote, security, to use the old fashioned term, of the press, which is that it's, uh, and let's not get into higher purchase and all these sort of complicated things, but which is basically if you don't manage to run your business so you can repay me, I can come and nick your press or in perhaps nearer to home, which is if you don't keep up your loan repayments on your mortgage, the bank can come and take your house, which is a bit sort of upsetting. Now, since those days, obviously, we've gone more to the information age and people start to, to, to lend against many more intangible things like marketing spend and all that kind of stuff, you know, Google ads and blah, 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 where there's a dis, dis demonstrable thing and there's obviously unsecured lending and there's things like personal guarantees which is that oh they'll lend to your company but they want a personal guarantee from Mr Richmond so when it goes wrong they come and take Mr Richmond's house away and you know take his kids away or something whatever so just from that perspective the equity challenge is that you get people coming around who may or may not always be helpful and who do actually end up owning a little bit of your business the challenge with debt perhaps is more that if you're repaying it nicely, that's all fine. It's not really much of a hassle to keep them involved and tell them a few KPIs and, and ratios and this kind of stuff. But the problem with debt is just like not repaying your mortgage on your house. When it goes badly, it can go quite badly and they can bring the whole bloody house of cards down, which is much harder for an equity provider to do. If I've given you, for example, tw I buy 25% of your company, give you a bunch of money and I sit on the board, I can be a pain in the arse and you can wish you'd never met me and all this kind of thing. But it's very hard for me to collapse your company around your ears unless there's some rinky-dink provisions in the term sheet. Um, but with debt, the, the downside can seem quite scary. Yes, that's true. It can be. I mean, it's worth, we, we could spend a, a lot of time talking just about the subject of debt, but I would just perhaps, um, you know, clarify a couple of things. So the, it, it really depends on where you're getting the debt from, which is an important point. So if, if you go into the banks, the banks want security. That's it. So you'll get the benefit of high street rates, but you'll need security and security, you know, banks generally like bricks and mortar or, or tangible assets and things that they can get that security against. And so if you go to a bank at an early stage, you're going to need some form of security. And if you don't have that by way of tangible assets like machinery or like a property, personal guarantees absolutely will come into play. And I'm not a fan of those, personally speaking. One, because I think it, it very much blurs the line between the company and the and the employees, let's remember that the, the founder, CEO and management are all employees of that company. And so I think it blurs the line. I think it's something that will and can impact decision-making in certain scenarios that may or may not be totally aligned between the individual and the company. And so it creates, I think, as I say, a level of 
grayness, if you like, that in terms of where those lines are, that probably isn't helpful. But the banks, certainly the, the high street banks may ask for it. If you go to the specialist lenders, and here I'm talking about early stage venture debt, and then later on, more about growth debt, and, and then back to the banks again, who later on will start to lend to balance sheet, you know, not just purely on tangible assets, but, you know, performance against your P&L and, and any reserves you may be building up and, and um, cash flows and so forth. But if you look at the, the venture debt providers, as always, there's good and bad. And you need to really do your diligence on, on who you go with. You need to be aware you're going to pay a premium and you need to be aware that, as we say, warrants are likely to be part of that. And be sure that you're you're working with a credible, reputable firm that actually is is there to see you succeed and isn't looking for an opportunity to come and turn the lights out and make perhaps more money or you know make money through that process. And so I think you've got to really do your diligence and, and look at not only who the, the debt provider is, but where do they get their money from? And what's their history and what's their, you know, speak to their portfolio, speak to people in their, in their base. Are they a good bunch of people that if there's difficult times, you know, you can work with them and, and can you agree a set of terms that reflect that importantly, because ultimately that's what it comes down to or not. And I think that's super important when you're taking on early stage debt, um, you know, venture type debt. And be, as I say, be prepared to pay a premium because you, you will pay a, a premium on it. But if you're very successful, that could far outweigh the equity cost that comes in terms of dilution. So I think they're, um, they're the key considerations. But you, you do absolutely have that scenario where you could, in the event that you can't meet your payments and in the event that you can't negotiate some other term, which typically most providers will look for, credible providers, because they don't want to see, to have to get into a, a situation where they're talking about, you know, solvency or other measures to, to see their monies repaid. But the ultimate scenario is that. So, you know, frankly, don't get into it if you're not, you know, comfortable that you can service the debt and don't borrow more than what you need. I mean, that's the, the principles of anything, really. And I think that's as important with lending to the, the company as it is with anything else in life. Okay, so there's a couple of questions that sort of strike me as helpful to wrap up this section. The first one we haven't spoken about, which is how long does it take to raise uh, debt compared to raising equity? So I think the general stat on fintech is that people who are funding themselves with equity end up doing a raise roughly on average every year. And uh, every founder that I've ever known that's going through a raise <laughs> is super stressed, not enjoying it. It takes bloody ages going around knocking on sort of VC's doors and, and all this kind of stuff um, and, and, and doing your pitches. And then even when you've got sort of, you know, agreement in principle, there's a ton of due diligence. and The process is so uh, time consuming mm -hmm. and takes so much time and distracts you from the day job. So the equity one seems painful. I have never met anybody who's done ABC and D. He said, oh, well, all of them are a piece of piss. There was no problem at all. We breezed <laughs> through it. No, it's not like that. It's, it's not like that. They have to start sort of, you know, going, going to sort of do detox after, after most, after at least some of, it, some of the raises. Uh, you've got to, got to Indeed. Work, get yourself off, Indeed. The, off the brandy. So uh, let's, let's start with that one and then we'll We'll come on to what the characteristics that best suit businesses to say, oh, look, let's forget the equity and do debt. So what is raising debt like in terms of time scale and how much distraction it is for the founder CEO compared to equity? I think, frankly, it can be less distracting because often, again, you know, debt's much more focused around affordability, coverage. You know, can you actually take on that money? Can you meet the repayment? 
uh, in the profile that's been you know being discussed. And so it's generally more straightforward. It does depend on at what stage you're taking debt and from what type of organisation. But you know, frankly, it's a straight more straightforward set of diligence because it's not about so much about addressable market and strategy and team and and you know and and product timing, positioning, all those kind of things. Generally, debt needs to in some somehow have some asset base to it. And if it's not through, like I talked about with the traditionally with the banks, sort of tangible assets, it'll be to do with your cash flows and it'll be to do with the, the, the strength of your reoccurring income and your ability to generate margins, uh, good margins. And so really the debt process is about demonstrating those things and providing that intelligence. It's, and it's, that's, a, in my view, is a lot less onerous than, uh, than a, you know, an equity-based process. So the advantage of, of the process of applying for debt is that debt will focus on a microcosm, on a, on a small subset of your business. The equity guys will always focus on the entire thing, as you say, the team, the background and the, the market and absolutely everything, which obviously takes longer to analyse. OK, and then just wrapping up this section then, uh, and again, it's a whole podcast in itself, but just again, from your perspective, who's come down the debt route, what kind of businesses do you feel best suit the possibility of you know a founder's going to found a business tomorrow he goes oh yeah i listened to ben yeah that was interesting actually maybe with this business we don't have to go the equity route and we should consider the debt route whether we do or don't it's another thing but we could we've got you know we think we should consider the debt thing what kind of founder if you're sitting in a pub and the bloke next to you says i'm thinking of forming a business tomorrow i heard you on that world beating podcast the other day <laughs> and i thought you were awesome and you know and the host a complete jerk but never mind the host <laughs> So Mr. Former. <laughs> exactly, and, and, I, and I've got uh, I've got this idea for a business. What, what do you think, Ben? Should I do this, uh, you know, via a debt route? What kind of things come into your mind chatting to this bloke in a pub or this lady in a pub? Indeed, indeed. The question is 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 really are you in a position to raise debt? And so, you know, what do you have to offer in terms of security? So you're not going to get debt if you if you have nothing. So if you don't have the assets, you know, do you have something that's generating cash flow? And you know, can you leverage that? So the first question is, what do you have that can, can, you know, can support a debt raise? It's very, very difficult to get it without, that form of secu- without a form of security based entirely upon a business plan where you've got a great idea. That's not really debt territory. That's very much more pure bootstrapping because you've really got to prove out. You know, debt lenders are not speculative. That's the difference. They're, they're very much about, can you, can you repay me with my premium? Thank you very much. So I think, um, you know, what, Obviously, in the world of, of um, where it's, you know, where there are those assets that a firm has in, in the sort of other industries of, of manufacturing and, and alike, where you can sort of, let, you know, leverage some of that asset base, you maybe have got, you know, property or whatever on the balance sheet, all of that absolutely could be used to raise debt. But in the world of tech, then it's, it's absolutely about um, subscriptions in every sense. If you've got a business that can demonstrate that you've got reoccurring income with, with your customers that, that generates good margin. It's a good operational leverage that debt firms will like to see that, you know, if there's, if there's darker days, things can be done for them to get their money back. But if you've got good reoccurring income streams, good subscriptions, that today is, a, is an asset in which you could, you could raise debt from. And so any tech business that's looking at a subscription-based business model has that opportunity, particularly if you have long-term customer contracts as well. Excellent. So, before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast, Smartest Transforming Pensions and Retirement Worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents 
and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The Listed Board.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Ben, you've been a very uh, good guest in terms of not overly mugging the main course, if at all, actually, to tell us about Cube. So maybe it's very helpful now if you give listeners a, a little bit of an overview of what Cube is, what markets you serve, who should be checking you out, uh, and what you, you need to make you even bigger and better. But just to, to wrap up the, the middle section, I think when we were talking before, one of the small points you made is that whatever you're doing, don't have some ideological purity about it. That's it. That's exactly it. Yep. Just the avoidance of doubt. It's not a question that uh, you're some kind of strange religious sect that doesn't doesn't believe in taking <laughs> equity. And if, if some VC turns up today with 100 million and doesn't want to see it on your board and only wants 1% of the company, you might actually sort of let them through the front door and give them a cup of coffee or two. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's an important, important point there, Mike, is that yeah, you just you just have to be, I think, pragmatic about these things. And it's not that debt's great and equity's not or vice versa. It's the right time, right place. And think about where you are on your journey. Think about, you know, whether you've got the opportunity to leverage debt. That's an initial qualifier. If you have, then you've got a decision to make. It could be a hybrid between the two, or it could be one or the other. And, and both have their pros and cons. For me, with Cube, I was in a position really where to start the company, I, I was able to bootstrap it. I was able to, to quickly win customers in, in a way that meant we could start to generate revenues. And I was, you know, I was already wise to the world of debt and being able to leverage those revenues in terms of raising debt. And so for me, it was it was really about a long term vision, wanting to build Cube into something very significant. I wanted Cube to and, and still do today, you know, to be the, the leader in the, the space that we, we occupy. And so therefore, it was the right thing for that long term vision and, and being able to maintain the direction that I'd set for the company in, in the, over the time horizon that I wanted to to achieve that. Now at the next stage, we're actually in a position now where we're very likely to take on equity because we're at a size and scale where it makes sense. The capital markets are very, very buoyant. Pricing's very good, terms are very good. And that means that where we are right now in terms of the acceleration we're going through, it's a great time to be able to look at taking on equity to support that acceleration. And frankly, the speed of our growth now outstrips our cash flows or the level of debt that we would want to take on as a firm. And so now it's the right time, right place for us to take on equity. But we will have the benefit of being in a, a strong position as to how you know we take that on and what that looks like to set us up for the next stage of the, the company's growth. Right. OK, so that's clear. So maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit more about Cube for the few listeners out there in the audience that, that won't be intimately familiar with you already. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, uh, for, those, for those few, as you say, Mike. So look, as we've said already, we're right in the heart of reg tech and, and that's the world in which we live. And the problem that we solve for our customers is around how they deal with the, the hugely challenging and complex world of regulation in a much more efficient and much more effective way by being able to take uh, regulation as it's produced today through all of the websites that exist across the globe, thousands and thousands and thousands of websites, and being able to use machines to read and understand that regulatory data in a way that humans aren't really able to do because of scale and, and, and volume and complexity. And being able to, to take that and enable our, our, our customers to understand what their regulatory obligations are in, in, a, in a much clearer sense, what they need to act upon, what they need to get done, and to be able to stay in tune with that as to how those obligations um, change over time 
and uh, making sure that they can stay compliant. And that is what we solve for using AI and using machines at scale to be able to do that for our customers. And we've been doing that now for some of the, the biggest banks in the world for many years, and then right across the whole of, of, of financial services, insurance, and into other regulated areas as well, in more of the general corporate functions. And which markets are you in at the moment? Which countries? We're global. We're truly global. So our product today is in, in use in about 150 countries. And you're just based in the UK as a firm? No, as a firm. No, we, we have a global presence as well. We operate right across the, the globe. We have UK, US, Australia and, and other entities set up across the globe. Um, so we operate very much as a, as, a, as a global firm. We follow the sun, if you like, in terms of all of our service and engineering activities. And that's, yeah, that's what we do. And we've, we've done that very successfully with our, our customers. And ultimately, it's, it's really interesting in, in the whole world of regulation because it's under huge scrutiny. If you think about what's happening in the world today, whether it's, uh, you know, the advent now of what's referred to as, as, you know, environmental and social governance, ESG, and what that's now bringing to, to deal with the issues around social inequality and climate related issues, or whether it's, you know, through more traditional areas of regulation, which is around the areas such as prudential and conduct and through to financial crime and so forth. It's a, a hugely complex and, and high growth area. And so if we can help our customers save a lot of money in terms of how they deal with those regulations and take out a lot of risk, that's really our, our mission. And, and it's referred to as, as regulatory intelligence or in the, in the case of Cube, automated regulatory intelligence. And that is um, a sector that will continue to grow significantly as regulation continues to uh, to persist, which it will. And even to the point of our earlier conversation, Mike, that we had, we talked about, you know, the stand up, sit down scenario. There'll be some regulation that will talk to how you should sit at your desk. And, and if you do stand, how you stand. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> this is the panopticon where everything we do will be monitored and scored and we will just be turned into little sort of robots and Hunger Games society. But I don't want to end on that sort of dystopian thing. No, 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 thing. not so. <laughs> The sun is still out. Especially in FS, FS has always been a, a regulated activity, not least of which because money doesn't actually exist. But uh, let's not tell anybody because that might sort of worry them slightly, just bits in banks' computers. So we have to be careful about that. But anyway, I'd like to thank you for that, Ben. It's been a, a very clear coverage of a, of a super important uh, topic. I mean, equity is probably right for the sake of argument for most business, businesses in the sort of in the tech world as, as a growth thing, but it shouldn't be the, the option that the new founder does without thinking it through. And as you say, there are many cases of using both debt uh, and equity and hybrid instruments and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I hope that people uh, in hearing you speak, is giving them more of a feel for it. And the fact that uh, one can indeed grow a reg text to substantial size, uh, working in almost uh, well, certainly the vast majority of countries in the world and the significant uh, staff without going down the equity route, which does mean at least that your board meetings are much simpler, less of a pain, and nobody's too busy telling you that actually, you know, they don't think that strategy is the right one, or, or maybe they've got a new idea for someone as a, a CEO if you popped out in the middle of a board meeting to go to the loo, uh, which people sometimes try and avoid, actually, to avoid that kind of conversation. <laughs> A pro tip, actually, which I've heard from sort of CEOs. Never, if your never board drink too much in well, the board meeting. Never yeah. drink too much of the board meeting. Go to the loo beforehand. Because if you pop out for 10 minutes, I'll be back, guys. Before you know it, you, you, you come back and they say, hey, we've had an idea in your absence and it probably isn't to your Indeed. benefit. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, well, well done for uh, debting and uh, long may your success 
continue in the future. So thanks for that, Ben. Thank you, Mike. It's been uh, been a pleasure. And um, yeah, thanks for, uh, for spending the time to talk today. It's been very good. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.